Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. The following program is intended for immature audiences only. Don't think, just listen. Coast to coast, border to border, and around the world, you're going online with Bill Alexander. Hi, everyone. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander on my friends. Call me Bill, and you're online with Bill Alexander here on WMCK.FM, Fayette TV, Channel 77, and we're being brought to you by Phil Giannetti Motors, providing quality vehicles for over 52 years. Give Chip a call at 724-685-6800. Got, got to remember those extra three numbers there. Anyhow, I hope everything's going fine for you on this uh, evening, this morning, or this afternoon, whenever you're listening to us on uh, on the podcast and also on WMCK and also on Fayette TV Channel 77. Well, tonight we have uh, something very entertaining this evening. We have an um, individual who just directed his first feature film called Killbird. And the gentleman's name is Joe Zanetti, and Joe is on the phone with us right now. Joe, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me, Bill. So am I pronouncing the last name right? It is Zanetti? It is Zanetti, yes. Okay. Zanetti is correct. So, Joe, give us a little bit of background of who you are and, um, and uh, why you decided to uh, have your first directorial debut with the movie Killbird. Gotcha. Well, I've been in the land of media for a long time. Uh, doing uh, Initially, I started in the acting world, and uh, right out of college, I moved over to L.A. and okay. was doing some, some work in L.A., and then uh, started doing some film production work, then started doing some video game production work, and then I, I'd been working on scripts for so long, and then one of the guys I met when I was working at, uh, at Warner Brothers in Montreal was a great writer who had this very rough version of a conspiracy story that was almost like a play. And it really intrigued me because it had a lot of sort of what I thought could be incorporated into modern elements that we're seeing right now as far as sort of things that, like whether it's sort of the, uh, the dark state and all kinds of conspiracies that are really like some people are believing, some people aren't, but they're in everybody's like sort of zeitgeist. Okay. And so it really, it, it rang true to me. And so I, I basically decided this, this was going to be my first big feature after a, a number of shorts I did. So um, you are the uh, director and you're also acting in the film? No, no, well, I have a little bit of voiceover, but okay. uh, generally it's just <laughs> directing and uh, producing, which are pretty big, pretty big things, actually. So how, how large is the cast for this film? Got it. It's, um, it's a, generally it's a two-hander, but it's, uh, it's got a number of smaller roles as well. So okay. total is about six, seven people. Okay. So the movie is a um, 
do you want to call it a suspense thriller? You want to call it a mystery? What do you want to call it? I I would call it a conspiracy. Okay. And the whole idea is, um, let's see. I, I'm I'm read I'm reading as I'm talking. So <laughs> sure. the the idea is is a bird watching trip that's gone wrong, gone wrong, right? Yep. And mm-hmm. the and your uh, main character comes across a remote cabin where she meets. Is it Riyadh? Oh, it's Riyadh. Riyadh, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. A recluse supposedly on the run from the CIA, paranoid and seemingly unstable. Sounds like a great start to a movie. (laughs) That you're running and you're paranoid. I mean, that's a great start. So how how do they interact when they first meet? Is it very, um, I mean, she's apprehensive? Is she trying to figure out who this guy is? And... um, and, and, and how did she get involved with him? Got it. Well, she's, her car's broken down, so she's uh, venturing up to try and get help anywhere. Mm-hmm. So as far as, as far as the viewer's concerned and as far as she's concerned, she's just trying to find help, like some jumper cables or something like that. Okay. And as soon as she sort of starts talking to him, she realizes that, He's not having. He's not a typical guy in that his questions are a little off. His cadence is a little off. Okay. But then she also isn't really responding. Like she's she's not like sort of frightened of this either. So you're not really sure what's going on when it starts. So it says here that she's a government agent. Well, it's uh, you have to figure it out because <laughs> it's something where she's not what she says she is. Okay. And that. You know, as far as what agency she might be working for and things like that, gradually as the piece develops, you realize that she was actually targeting Riyadh and that a number of these items that she was asking for, she already had those solved and she has her own agenda. Oh, okay. So in other words, um, the audience is actually trying to figure out what's going on at the same time then. So they're trying exactly to figure right. out what's exactly happening right. as it goes on, and they're trying to figure out who she is, let alone who he yep. is, and how the two interact with each other. Very interesting. Um, so yep. what did Riyadh do that got him in trouble with the uh, with the government? Well, he has uh, an interesting backstory that hopefully I can turn into a prequel at some point. Okay. But he uh, used to uh, work... Well, this is this is sort of another thing that the audience is trying to figure out, where... Is this person just a crazy Unabomber, like who's stuck in the woods and has terrorist tendencies? Which is interesting. Or is this guy- which is interesting because I was thinking Ted Kaczynski whenever you were telling me this story. That's exactly who right. I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. no, he's he's a great reference. And then, but as you're sort of going through it, mm-hmm. it's oh, is this guy not crazy? Is this conspiracy actually real? Okay. And you start to see little tidbits of what his backstory could be. And so Taylor doesn't believe him at all, but then he starts saying things where, oh, did this actually come from his experience with the NSA? Oh, he used to be in the military, and he has all these various elements that start to piece together. So the audience's ability to see whether, oh, is this a crazy person 
or is this someone who is actually more like Edward Snowden on the run, you know, as a whistleblower? Okay. It becomes very unclear, and I uh, I will not give you the answer of which it ends <laughs> up being, but it's uh, but basically you're sort of like trying to desperately figure out what Riyadh is and what Taylor is. Okay. Now, this movie, is it? does it resemble anything we may have seen already? Is it a type of, I mean... Because I'm getting different pictures of films in my head, and and I'm just wondering, Mm -hmm. does it resemble anything else we may be familiar with? I would say it has a little bit of Born Identity. Uh, It definitely has a little little spin of Born Identity. It has a little bit of Enemy of the State, if you know that old old film. And um, a lot of uh, items where you have sort of institutional sort of uh, corruption or conspiracy coming down on a small number of individuals. It's uh, it's in that kind of wheelhouse. So the movie, um, from what you're telling me, it's the two main characters. Are they stuck in the cabin for the whole film? Are they using, are you using flashbacks with this? Are you uh, to, 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 to build the story or how, how are you, how are you building the story? So we understand what's going on. Got it. It's um, it starts sort of in the woods, goes into the cabin. Definitely, the focus is the cabin. Okay, but it's one of those things where it's sort of a a maze of different layers of information that you find out as you delve into different parts of the cabin. Okay, where you discover is there a prisoner here? What is this sort of uh, information that he's hiding? And then as it starts to escalate and more people get involved. It goes out into the wilderness. It goes out into sort of uh, a car chase. And then, uh, you know, and so it it's, comes out of the cabin. But I would definitely say the majority of the action is happening in that space. Now, d- being the director of the film, did you run into any problems since you were just using such a confined space to shoot the, to shoot the majority of the film with just two individuals? It's extremely hard to make it dynamic and so one of the things that was very important early on was we did a lot of rehearsal where we're sort of blocking through it to make sure we had very dynamic visuals within the cabin we were slowly revealing and not uh sort of overexposing different elements of it so we definitely me and the cinematographer we were working through it very carefully okay so that it it becomes something that's still dynamic while using confined spaces now, what time of year does this does this take place? It takes place in a in a pretty light a uh, light time of uh, time of year. It's about spring summer. Okay, because I because I, I'm sure that if you would have done this in the winter, it would have given it a totally different feel. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, it's it's one of those things where we were debating doing a winter shoot. As it happened, as far as logistics and scheduling with everybody, we uh, we picked. Uh, Late June, early July is sort of the uh, the best time frame to get everybody involved. And so there is, though, a nice juxtaposition between everything going darkly wrong while you have sort of this serene background at the same time. Now, when I asked you before we went on the air tonight how long it took you to shoot this film, you just blew me away. How long did it take you to shoot this film? It took me 12 days. <laughs> Okay, so it took you 12 days to shoot. How long did it take you to edit? To edit, uh, much longer than that. Uh, Let's see. I would say total about seven weeks. Okay. So this film was actually shot then last year? 
Yes. Okay. Uh, it was shot in, uh, yeah, last year in July. Okay. So um, how much fine-tuning did you have to do to be come up with the, the, the finished product? Because I know there's a lot of times you do a rough edit, and then you do another edit, and then you do other edits after that. How long did it take you to get that final product? Or were your actors able to follow directions that easily that you didn't have to worry about it too much? Well, you know what? It wasn't uh, the actually. I'm so happy with uh, with the actors we had. They they did an amazing job. I think the tough thing is I was I was asking them to do a whole lot because okay. I had dialogue that was super fast. That they were doing action while they're delivering dialogue that's super fast. So it was one of those things where I had to divide sometimes full scenes into sections. So it was more about making sure I had the right moments and exactly the right tone in the right sections of the piece. So that was really the biggest challenge because they, they both brought it, you know, all over the place. But then there were, because of our constraints of 12 days, we had only a certain number of takes we could pull off. And so in some cases it was finagling so that the whole flow of these from take to take felt seamless. And that's where uh, it became uh, me and the editor doing a, a lot of back and forth. So where does it takes place in the woods? Where are the woods at? The woods uh, where we actually shot it is uh, Pit Meadows, British Columbia, which is just outside of Vancouver. Okay, and um, and it's a uh, it's a beautiful spot where it was this uh, this cabin in the woods that no one was actually living in. So the person who rented it to us allowed us to do anything we wanted to the cabin. Oh, so nice. we were able to really production design it into all kinds of uh, fun ways so that uh, to really achieve the kind of uh, feel and ambiance we want. Oh, that's really nice. So it takes place, you, you shot it in British Columbia, but where does it take yeah. place in the United States? It takes place in Oregon. Oregon. Okay. Well, it would resemble it then. Um, so yes. 12 days, how big was your, how big was your crew um, that worked on this film? It was about, Depending on the day, more when we were doing stunts, but usually it was averaging around 40, 40 people. Okay. Um, and I'm going to ask the one question that uh, I know people are going 12 days and, and a big crew like that. What was the final cost of the film? I am never supposed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, it, is, it is an extremely low budget. Okay. Which, my uh, my distributor has said I am not allowed to talk about it, <laughs> but it's extremely low. It uh, it is less than one would think. Okay, okay, that's what I was going for. That works for me. So, when is the movie supposedly? When is it going to be released? Um, we're still working through sort of the final details. Okay, but uh, basically, we just did our our premiere at the Dances with Films Festival here in L.A. And now we have a bit more of a festival run, and then we're hoping to have our, our final distribution release in uh, early 2020. So are you looking at putting it on one of the online sites like Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu, or how are you looking at getting out to the public? Um, almost definitely we're going to go with a, a streaming strategy, a VOD strategy. Okay. Um, we'll probably try and do a little like small uh, theatrical uh, sort of experiences in a couple major cities, but it's mostly going to be available to the, the majority of the U S through stream. So is this the most in-depth film that you've actually worked on? 
not saying you directed, but but of the films you've done and you've worked on, is this one of the biggest ones you've done? This is this is definitely the biggest one I've done. I uh, my my past work has been little short films to sort of get chops and get my experience up to snuff that were around seven minutes, ten minutes, okay. five minutes, that kind of thing. And this one, of course, is eighty-five minutes. Okay, so it it, it is. It's it's a, a full length film then, for the for the most yeah. part. And um, and and that that's what's really interesting. Now, give you a little bit of my background. I actually teach media on a local level. Ah. I teach on a high school level and I have students mm-hmm. that are actually going into um, cinematography and going into films. And the mm-hmm. one question they asked me, which is I, I am so grateful that you're on the program that I now ask you their question mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. how much creativity do you get when you're working on someone else's film? Hmm. It's, it really depends on a number of things, actually. Okay. I would say the, if you're directing, you usually have a lot of creativity. If you're on a film, generally, depending on whether you're with a big studio or if you're with an indie uh, studio or an indie distributor, then it's a much more of an auteur model, and I would say you have a lot of uh, you have a lot of lenience to do a lot of things. Okay, because really they're looking for you to bring your artistic vision to this piece, and so even if they hand you a script, they expect you to take that script and make it into the best thing that you can. So I would say in those in the independent film scene, I would say a massive amount of creative uh, is on 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 the owner, on the director. Okay, um, with. With studio films, I mean, the larger the budget you go, the more stakeholders you have and the more people you have who are going to provide you feedback loops. So I would say uh, with indie film, that's that's the lovely thing about indie film. Now, did you go to school to do this? I went to school for film studies and behavioral neuroscience <laughs> as a double major. You had a, you had a plan B is what you're telling me. <laughs> I did. I did have my pre-med plan B. <laughs> okay. Where'd you go to school at? Um, I went to Yale, actually. Oh, really? Um, yeah. That Okay. That kind of shocks me, but I guess it shouldn't. Um, <laughs> so you went to Yale. I, I'm sure mom and dad are so proud of you. Or, they or, they are very proud. They are. They were very when I when I started doing everything to do with media. They were of course very concerned. <laughs> they were not. They were not. They were not as happy with that choice. But I was like, hey, you know how I was debating being a doctor? Yeah, I don't feel like that's what I'm going to do, and I'm moving to L.A. Bye. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they, that they didn't respond amazingly well. To that. Yeah, because um, I'd hate to see what your your student loans are. Jeez for going to Yale. But. Oh, it's thankfully it, uh, when I went, uh, it was a little, a little better, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, obviously that's, uh, it's a chunk of change. <laughs> so my question for you, since you went to Yale, um, when you tell people you went to Yale and you went for film studies and everything else, does that open any doors for you? Or do, do you have to do the same thing that someone that would have graduated from any other college would do because you have to build up your reputation. You have to build in your time. You still have to put in your time and put in your work because it's a, 
It's a funny thing because it helps you in certain ways okay. and it doesn't help you in others. Like it, it helps you in ways where people on the ground, what's really nice is they're like, okay, we believe you're a hard worker and we believe you're smart. Right. So you have that at least as a go-to. But then as far as are you talented, do we believe in your creative vision? Do we believe – like no one believes in any of that. So you basically have still have a lot to prove as far as quality of script, quality of what you're able to shoot, like quality of being able to use a budget smartly. All that you have to prove yourself. But generally you're given a little bit of a default of we think you're capable, and then it's a matter of whether they believe in your vision and your okay. passion. And, and that's what I that's what I uh, that's what I was curious about. Now, the one thing that um, I know, and let me back up on my question here. So, how long have you been out of school? Uh, long time. Let's see. Uh, I guess it's about at this point. Uh, I graduated in 1999. So uh, you, you know, haven't been out uh, that 20 long. Years, Twenty years. <laughs> you haven't been out that <laughs> <Yeah>. long. Um, <laughs> Trust me. It feels, feels, like, <laughs> feels like a while ago. <laughs> um, so you've been out of school for 20 years. How many how many films or short films or projects have you worked on in those 20 years? Let's see. I would say different roles. That's, that's probably the most interesting part where I worked on a lot of films where I was involved in script development and green okay. light packaging. And that I worked on probably five or six films. Then I did post-production on a, a PBS uh, film. Then I did three short films, and then I uh, then I worked on this feature. Okay, so and so that yeah. So you you said you worked for PBS. How is it different working for for a? And I know they're public, but how is it different working mm-hmm. for an organization like that than working on independent film? That one, it's really about the concept that fills that fits into the specific goal of the broadcast because that was for independent lens and so they have a very specific thing they're trying to do that has a specific time frame and so it's really about tone correct timing and then also that one was a documentary so of course very different kind of experience and it's really about taking all that real life footage and turning it into a story that's compelling and that one also very much about the back and forth with the editor now if you don't mind me asking what was the documentary about um that one it was called gray gardens from east hampton to broadway and at the time i was working for a company that produced the gray gardens musical and so it was uh working with albert mazels oh who, wow uh, if if you know yeah so yeah. that that's what was so wonderful about it and so he basically was involved in the film. We interviewed him for the film. And so it was talking to him and then about the transition of the Grey Gardens movie into the musical and how that transition happened okay. and what the sort of different pieces were that were taken from the original doc and turned into the musical. Oh, very interesting. So, um, so you're actually able to make a career out of doing what you're doing or are you doing odd jobs to, to put food in the table and a roof over your head? I'm doing way too many things. I would say the... <laughs> the starving artist route is I, what you're doing. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because I, I've always, like, for the last number of years, I've worked in video game production and film, and I keep bouncing back and forth. And strangely enough, the video game production is more stable of the two. 
And so I bounced between doing films and then working on uh, different video games. And so that's that's been how I sort of keep food on the table at the same time that I uh, that I do film. So what what uh, do you do for video game production? Um, that I uh, I mean, right now I'm working at a, at a company called Scopely Games. We do uh, mobile games and I'm a, a producer for uh, a game called Star Trek Fleet Command. Oh, OK. So. What would your responsibility do? Are you the one organizing the team that does all the work? Are you overseeing everything? Or do you have a direct hand in everything that's happening? It's sort of, it's a little bit of uh, column A and a little bit of column B. Like a lot of, uh, a lot of team structuring, a lot of goal orientation for the team, bringing everybody together, and then sort of making sure everybody's clear on the vision of the product. And so what's, what's nice about it is, there's a lot of overlap between being on set and getting everybody driving toward the finish line and doing what I do for video games. So the, the skill overlap is pretty significant actually, which is nice. So have, I mean, and I, and with the video game industry and I'm making an assumption here, I'm probably wrong, but you're working with young developers, correct? Uh, yes. Okay. Usually it's young developers. I mean, there's old hands too, but usually right. it's, uh, a lot of twenty-somethings, early thirties. Now, have you noticed with the twenty-somethings that their way of working is different than w- the way you work, and their motivation is much different than the way yours is? I think it, it definitely depends on the individual. Okay. I would say there are absolutely differences. I mean, I I have my sort of old school things, but also I think because I have been dealing with a lot of uh, young professionals for so long, I might not even notice it anymore. So okay. I might just be used to it. So I, I might be working the same way at this point. Because I was just curious, because I keep hearing about um, the millennials and these generation differences mm. that we're hearing and that the work ethic may be there, but they just approach things differently than an older generation would. I, it definitely is something where, I mean, what I've, what I've noticed when I work with uh, millennials is it's really about ownership. Like okay. they, they want to be able to own something from soup to nuts. Like it's not always about, you know, how much am I being paid? How much vacation do I have? It's more about, is this work sort of satisfying both, you know, what I want to do long term? Does it give me a creative inspiration? Is it something I can like really see my end product and believe in? It's, it's a lot of those kinds of things. They're taking pride in what they're doing. And that's, and I think that's, um, mm-hmm much much different than what we're familiar before because before everybody the older generations were money driven and these are these individuals are more product driven that they're getting they're getting satisfaction about what they're creating and i think that's interesting because i'm hearing a lot of that from um from business owners not only in what you do but in other areas that are saying the same thing Mm -hmm. and they're having i don't Mm -hmm. want to say a difficult time but if money doesn't motivate them, what motivates them? Right. So and yeah, I, I think it is something where yeah, the uh, the money can only do so much, but you have to make sure that there's enough creative inspiration in the position, and especially in creative industries like film and video games, that there's enough creative for them to work on that it keeps them inspired. Which is uh, very interesting. Now, the other thing you said too, so you're. In this movie, Kilbert, that we're talking about, you were the director, the co-writer, the co-producer. Correct. So how long did it take you to put the whole thing together before you started shooting? 
Oh, man, that was a, a massive process. I would say it started in around June of 2018. I optioned that first draft that I talked about. Yes. Then I rewrote it for about seven months. Then I joined up with my production partner in early 2019, and that's when we started looking for financing. We spent about three to four months locking down financing. And then as soon as that happened, everything was extremely fast. So that was in about late May 2019. And then once that hit, casting happened within three weeks. Crew was assembled within another two weeks. And then we sort of quickly ramped up, got the location, and then, uh, and then set the, the, sh- the shoot date probably pretty – that we set pretty late. We set it in uh, probably early May – Early May, early June. No, I take that back. It was in early June. We took it. We we set the shoot date in early June for uh, for the first week in July, and then uh, and then shot it. So, I mean, to, from what I'm hearing, because I would assume it would take longer to do it, this actually moved very quickly. Um, from for, yes, it was it was very fast actually, and uh, I especially because I've I've had a lot of projects in development, and this one mainly because of the scale of it and the fact that we were trying to do a thriller in a in one location, it allowed us to have easier access to financing and also just we could produce the film on a low enough budget that we could action it pretty fast. That you're not allowed to talk about, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> so when you and, and, and again, if you don't want to tell me that's perfectly fine because I'm I'm trying to figure this out as as you talk to me about it. When you get financing, who do you get financing from? Well, with a project like this, it usually has to be small chunks of change. Okay. So you're in, you're incorporated, and then you're going to friends, family, people who think movies are cool, like whoever is interested in just, hey, I, I have some extra money and I'm interested in a film. And then with our particular approach, we said – if you're willing to put this much money in, we're going to give you an executive producer credit. So we have a lot of executive okay. producers. So you know, the, and that, but that was one of our strategies. So the guys at International Movie Database is putting a lot of people's names in your film. Is what you're in your credit page is what <laughs> you're telling correct. me. <laughs> which, That's correct. Which is kind of interesting. Um, um, hi, everyone. You're listening to online with Bill Alexander here at WMCK.FM and also on Fayette TV. Uh, channel 77 and we're talking to joe zanetti who uh, just uh, finished his directorial debut with the movie Killbird. and joe we've heard stories about independent filmmakers who max out their credit cards to do this but you were able to get all the fine independent financing without having to do that i i will still say that there's there's money i've had to put into it okay. don't get me wrong you, you know, like it's it's something where you have your budget and then there's always the extras that come in after the fact. And so at a certain point, you have to cover it. Right. I mean, the nice thing is because we did it in British Columbia, there's a really nice labor tax credit there. So as soon as our distribution tick kicks in, we're going to get that money back. So we're covered to some extent, but it's still something where we had a certain budget and then as you start going through the the finals of marketing, submitting the festivals, talking to all the sales agents, going to markets, all that adds up. And so, yeah, there's 
there's still some some credit card uh, you know <laughs> debt that happens uh, you know when you're finishing this thing up. Well, the one thing I found interesting, and I did not know this, when you submit these mm. to these festivals, you actually have to pay an entrance fee to do that, correct? Oh, every single time, yeah. That absolutely. that just amazes me because I I mean. I must be so naive that I didn't think that that they would do that, but I guess they would have to to, to create some type of stir and to be able to justify what they're doing. Um, so you've been in one festival so far, am I correct? That is correct. Yes. And how did you do there? How was the response? Um, the the response was great. I mean, what was what was really nice the the festival uh, dances with films festival has a very specific mandate where. We had series regular TV stars, but we didn't have bankable stars in our film. Um, okay. And so their mandate is we pride ourselves on solid, awesome, independent film. Okay. And to them, the definition of that is if you have, you know, some some famous star such as, you know, if, if Tom Cruise is like doing an indie film, to them, that's not an indie film. Right. So for them, they, they basically are like, hey... You guys don't have stars, but it's still awesome. We're going to put it in our festival, and then they make then they make a point of trying to bring an LA community around the festival to sort of support it, okay. help with distribution, and all those kinds of things. Okay, I mean, and and that that makes that makes sense because that way, because like you said, you have people that may be recognizable, but they're not star power. That people aren't going right, to focus, exactly. say, hey, it's a Tom Cruise film, it's a Tom Hanks film, whoever it is, we're going to yep. go see it. You're mm -hmm. not going to be guaranteed a certain amount of money. Um, you guys right. are basically clawing out every dollar and dime you can get. Exactly. So, so yeah, it's it's something, yeah, sorry, you are saying? <laughs> so, the, the people that you have in the film, um, mm -hmm. how did they audition for it? The audition process was really interesting because I was I was determined to get some of the, the great TV talent that's in Vancouver because so many TV shows shoot in Vancouver. So you've, you've got like all the CW series, you've oh, got, okay. you know, things like The 100, The Flash, Gotham, all these all these shoot in Vancouver. And so I made it sort of my my mission to get some of those the, the great TV talent that's there. And so what I did is went to a couple casting directors who were, I won't say owed me a favor, but like who I knew from my video game work in Vancouver okay. and said, hey, who would you put on this list if I was looking for these specific things? Who are your top 15 actors that are local that you would put on this list? And so even though I did do cold call auditions from all the agencies there, in the end what I ended up doing is picking specific people and sort of targeting them and trying to get them to either do quick reads or offer or do an offer straight out. And so that's uh, that's how I got connected with Stephen Lobo uh, playing Riyadh. And then uh, once I uh, started down that path, and once Stephen was extremely excited about the project, other people started to domino in. And uh, I did a. It's amazing that she did it. But when I uh, when I first started talking to Alicia Rotaru. She had been in Vancouver. Uh, she's she's been a series regular on Arrow, all kinds of things, and had just moved to L.A. and she couldn't come back to Vancouver to do a read, and so she did her chemistry test over Skype. Oh, really? And so we had to do it. Yeah. So we had this evaluation over Skype, and she killed it. And it was just it was amazing that she was able to convey all the spontaneity and all the sort of wonderful attributes of the character over a Skype uh, chemistry test. 
Well, that and, and I'm looking at some of the names that you have here, and um, you may not recognize the name, but if you look at them, you're going, I've seen her before. And with Alicia um, from the TV program, she was in uh, Arrow, and she was um, in the Diary of the Whippy Kid, which is where I'm familiar seeing yep. her at. Which I, uh, that, yep. again, so they may not have big star power, but they're recognizable to the public. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, some of our, our day players, uh, to that Aaron Douglas and Tom O'Pennicott, I mean, they're old school Battlestar Galactica yeah. guys. And, you know, anyone who loves those shows, like they're, uh, you know, they're front and center in our film. And, you know, I, what's great about Battlestar Galactica is even though it's off the air now, it, it has such a following that still continues. Yeah, that, that is, that's just amazing me. So you did get some, some, uh, name power. So were they happy to be a part of an independent film? They they always like independent film because they're allowed to do things that they're usually they're not given the opportunity to, to do in the larger scale films. So, for example, Stephen Lobo was playing against type. Uh, Alicia did a number of things that were against type. She was also able to do a lot of her own stunts and wanted to do a lot of her own stunts. So those 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 actors got to do some things that were very unique. And they even told me after the fact that it prepared them for other indie films that they've been doing. Oh, and it was cool. very unique from any of the TV work that they've been doing. Oh, that's, that's, that is, that's very interesting. So when is your target date? When's your next film fest? Why well, should ask? Let's see. So we basically are in the running for a few that are coming up in the fall. Okay. So I would say we don't have confirmations yet, but, uh, September, October, November is sort of our next run that we're looking at. And we're just going back and forth with the festivals right now. So trying to get all our confirmations in line. But we we don't have sort of set ones yet. Okay. And when are you looking at um, distribution of the film? After the film festivals are over? I would say most likely after. I can't, I can't say for sure because it's one of those things where our, uh, our sales agent is going to start going to various uh, networks and such uh, pretty much as soon as uh, August, September, I would say. Okay. So as far as whether we're starting distribution prior to festivals, I can't say yet, but that's when we're going to be doing the primary push for getting the distribution locked as well as sort of our final festival push. Oh, wow. Um, so you have a lot of work ahead of you before... Um... I do. It's still going. <laughs> yep, still going. So how, what's more difficult, the actual movie or the promotion for the movie? I Honestly, the, the filming, even though I, I expressed 12 days, 16 hours, yeah. the filming is much more straightforward. Because right. everything after, after you have a delivered product, that's stuff where it's not under your control, there's a lot of variables, and you have lots of back and forth. And, uh, you know, you're trying to figure out the best positioning for your film, the best marketing angle for your film, the trailers that are really going to sell it to the correct audience. That is all, I would say, in some ways much tougher. Uh, I mean, even though the filming is, is tough, it's really about work and preparation. And if you get the right group of people together, you can execute really well. The, the rest of it is, uh, is definitely challenging. Because it, it sounds that way, and in some ways it sounds like the prom promotion is more difficult than the actual film, because like you said, you have control over that. This this is a crapshoot, because as someone once said, <laughs> advertising works half the time. The only problem is we don't know which half the time it works. 
So <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> no, it's so true. And I mean, especially now when, you know, people have content options. You know, yeah. they can go on in Netflix, they can go on HBO Go, they can go on all these things, and there's so much content that's out there. So you need to make a mark and show that your execution is great and that you have something to say that's really interesting. And so that's that's a great challenge. Uh, you know, when you look at these sort of distribution models as well as sort of social media promotion and all that. Well, I think I think in some ways for an independent film such as yours, that you're probably um, actually glad that there's a Netflix out there or an Amazon Prime or these streaming services, because 20 years mm-hmm. ago, if you didn't get picked up, they were put on a shelf somewhere. At least now, oh, at right. least now yeah. you know your audience has to see it because, and I, and, and my age, I'm in my fifties. I, I hate to say, I sound like an old curmudgeon, but I don't like to leave the house. It's so much easier to turn on my TV and go to one of the streaming sites and watch it here with my wife than it is to get in the car, fight the crowd, sit down, go through 20 minutes of previews, sit there, watch it, and then come back home again. It's easier just to walk into my living room and sit down and watch it on my large uh, TV screen. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that um, and a lot Mm. more of independent films being exposed and found because of this type of uh, model that we have right now, which, again, I think for the independent filmmaker, it's actually probably a very positive model. Yeah, I mean, I would say, like, it's sort of like the back and forth of it. The the tough thing is there's lots of content out there. The great thing is there's so many avenues to showcase your film. Right. You know, whereas uh, to, to your point, you know, 20 years ago, as as you say, if you're not getting a theatrical release, you do your festival run and that was it. That was, that's it, buddy. Yeah. You know? And I, and I don't know if we've ever saw media go this way before, especially films, but I think this is, mm-hmm. I think... Um, we're going to see a lot more made for the streaming services than we are for the big screen, because I think your overall your your monetary hit is going to be more positive coming through streaming sites than it is going through the actual uh, major releases, because a streaming site can host it forever. Definitely. So I I, I mean. Not that you don't want to have your names and lights and everything else, but if if you can get a solid run on one of the streaming sites, you're doing pretty good. Oh, ab- absolutely. And, I mean, you see so many major players and major directors, major auteurs going to the streaming sites and doing Netflix original films, right. Hulu original films, because they're given more creative license. They don't have a $200 million budget, which is both great and comes with a lot of strings attached. Right. So they can do much more personal stories because they're given that creative control and they're doing it on this streaming site. So the other short films that you've done, um, are they available to be viewed anywhere? Um, they are. Those are those are online. They're uh, they're on my uh, my website, frozenfishproductions.com. They're also on YouTube. I mean, two of them that are up there are one is called The Chase. It's a romantic thriller that's about six, seven minutes long. And the other one is called uh, The Slumber Party, which is a uh, dramedy about a a father and daughter. Okay. And, uh, yeah, both of them were extremely, extremely helpful in prepping for for this one. So a short film, six, seven minutes. Is there, I mean, I know it's done for a training and to get your feet wet Mm -hmm. and give you exposure. But is there a market for short films like that? Is there, I mean, because short content? 
it's 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 pretty challenging. I would say with streaming, I know some of the streaming sites are trying to create avenues for short films. Okay, but as far as getting true monetary, like get your money back kind of situations with short films, it's it's extremely challenging. I mean, the best you can usually hope for is it becomes a great calling card that jumps you to the next project. And, uh, and you know, you get great exposure to uh, a lot of uh, different production uh, elements from the festivals doing short films. But at, at least from my experience, it's very hard to monetize those. Um, and with the short film, do you feel the seven minutes is enough time to develop characters in a story? You have to you have to be very concise with it. You can you can do a couple things really well, and I actually my shorts were pretty ambitious in what they were trying to do, but it is something where you have to do a very concise story where you don't dwell on too many characters, okay. so that you get a beat of a beat of beginning, a beat of, beat of end that's very clean and very clear, and then it's really about especially to, to get into festival play, it's really about saying something that has has an impact and, of course, executing really well. Okay. Now, have you looked at doing things like th- that would be um, episodic, that would be short pieces over a period of time, or are you just like the whole feature film idea? I do love features, but it is something where one of the things I'm trying to to leverage this feature into is some of my uh, television projects. And so it's something where I have a backlog of features I want to do, but I also have a couple uh, TV series that are similar in tone in that sort of uh, thriller space. But but that sort of, to speak to sort of the calling card kind of approach, having a couple solid feature films which shows your energy or creativity or vision is a great way to get into uh, the TV market. And it's hard to get those TV meetings unless people really know you can do a feature one. So what is, what is some of the content idea for your TV series? One of them is a uh, series called the rig, which uh, is based in Alberta and uh, is, about a it's it's similar in tone i would say to the lost the lost where you have a couple individuals that are fish out of water that okay. are thrown into what they think is this normal oil rig that ends up being sort of a front that has underlying agendas and a group of officials that are working for a foreign government and they're not actually mining oil and it becomes more about a sort of a uh a bioweapon race and oh, it, okay. it gets quite intense quite quickly but it's it's basically similar in some ways to killbird in that there's a lot of onion layers to be peeled and you're figuring out that there's a lot of uh very sort of scary elements that are underlying this particular oil race. so with something like that would you do it as a mini series or would you be able to do it as an episodic piece that would go over multiple years this one, the intention is that it would be over multiple years. I'm sure I could do a miniseries version, but the intent was to sort of have table flip elements that would ha- happen after each season so that your expectations and context for this particular situation and where it is in the context of sort of global politics and uh, global assassinations and those kinds of things becomes escalated as it goes. So 
that's that's why I compare it to Lost in that you think you're starting with one thing and it has these tiers that tear it up as it goes. Because the one thing I think would frustrate me about it is after, say, two or three seasons, I'd get to a point going, okay, we just got to end it now. I mean, there's really not much more we can do with it. But um, I guess if you're a visionary and have the creative background that you can keep something going for multiple years, I guess that's a plus for you. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely something that I, I I'd love to dig my teeth into more. And and as you say, it's a, it's a very challenging to from season to season make sure you're doing enough different but maintaining the those character elements that keep you going from from season to season. So every the the type of the type of um, genre you like the most is in, is basically like you said suspense, um, mystery, conspiracy type thing. Have you looked at doing anything else like drama or humor or? You're just more focused on um, the. I would say I would say that I definitely have a lot of thriller in my in my headspace, but I also really do, and this is probably for for later on. Okay. Is I really do love dark absurdist comedies. Oh, that okay. Are, uh, you know, and this, as I say, this is more down the line. But when I look at. Charlie Kaufman's work, when I look at work like that, which is taking sort of a surreal approach to very human dynamics, yes. that's, you know, shows like The Good Place, where it's investigating crazy, absurdist versions of the afterlife. I do have a couple pieces that are similar in tone to those that I'd, I'd love to hit later on. Um, the Good Place took me a while to follow, but yeah, I understand where you're coming from. I really do. Um <laughs> So the TV idea that you have or the, the series idea, do you have anybody looking at them or are you going to produce them independently and then try to sell them in syndication? Um, that one right now I'm going through sort of a, a, a writing cycle on it and okay. that I'm uh, re- rewriting the first couple episodes. I do have a couple uh, distribution companies that are interested in, in that particular series as far as the high-level concept. So I'm just right now I'm trying to get the uh, the scripts to the level of, quality they need to be but uh but but there is interest in them i mean that's i think one of the reasons why i do like the thriller space so much and uh you know why a lot of people do the horror space as well is those create a lot of excitement among uh distributors sales agents and there's a there's a big community that really enjoys those genre whether it's tv series or or films right and and with that type of stuff too on netflix and and the streaming services which amazes me that they've become popular because people are able to binge them. And then you yeah. get the wait for another whole year. I started doing that with a couple programs that I, I, mm-hmm. I, I ruin the fun by binging them over a weekend. <laughs> and then I have to wait a year for the new episode to come out <laughs> because when I was a kid, you had to wait to whatever day of the week, the following week to catch up to where you were at because there was no binging at the time. And that was when VCRs were invented. And if you missed an episode, you recorded it. So it's funny because my, uh, my fiance and I, we really try to not binge episodes yeah. so that we go almost with the, the, the net, the prime network kind of cadence. So we'll watch an episode of something a week so that we don't have exactly that. <laughs> you know, when you binge it all at one time, it's like, okay, now I have, a, you know, and it leaves you with a cliffhanger and you're like, ah. Oh. Well, when we, my wife and I do, we do that, we start watching something and then we'll go, you know what? We have time for one more episode. And then we get through right. with that one. They go, no, we got time for one more. And then that night we watch six. So again, mm-hmm. it's just one of those things where, 
it's it's a new way of it's a new way of viewing it in one sitting space. So uh, real mm. quick before I let you go, because I've really enjoyed this, mm. and I want whenever oh, when the film is released on a, a national basis, no matter how it's being released, I'd love to have you back on the show again so we can talk about it. Um, but what would you like to tell my audience about Killbird that we haven't said? I would say Killbird as a movie, if you are someone who really loves an intense ride, finding, like trying to figure out what's actually going on, sort of a, and, and really just sort of challenges you. I think that's, it's, it's a movie that I think will, will really inspire you because it also goes into a lot of themes that we're seeing today. And it's really about what can, what can we all do as individuals, you know, when uh, a crazy, crazy information is presented to us and we have to parse it and decide what's real and what's not. Which again, it, it sounds like it's going to be a great film and I wish you all the luck and it says right here in one of the quotes in one of the press releases, it's a film that gives the viewer a punch in the gut. That's exactly right. So I think, honestly, if you can say that and it actually does, I think you're you're in a good space. So, Joe, I appreciate you joining us this evening. I hope to have you back on the uh on the program. Hey, maybe this fall before you do the uh, festival run again and we can talk about it and go into a little bit more of your video games and any other future projects you may have. So I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Uh, Thank you, Bill. Uh, Have a good night. Bye-bye. And on the phone, we just had Joe Zanetti in his directorial debut of the movie Kilbird, and uh, he also is the co-writer and the co-producer of the film. Sounds like a real fun, uh, <laughs> a fun watch, um, and can't wait to see it come out um, sometime this fall after he gets done with the uh, film festival circuit, as he says. And uh, just give you an idea of what the movie is about. Again, Kilbert is a conspiracy thriller with an intriguing political twist that seems so real and possible. It's a film that gives the viewer a punch in the gut says the director, co-writer, co-producer Joe Zanetti. It meant, it's meant to shock. It's meant to raise questions. What is the truth? Where is the individual agency in our time? And who can we trust? Again, sounds like a great film. A lot of people that uh, you may not know the names, but you'll know the faces when you see them in the film. And again, stay tuned um, to keep listening. Joe will be back on the show um, this fall once he gets done with the film festivals. And we'll talk about the release and everything else when it comes to the actual big screen or maybe your TV screen. It all depends on uh, where the movie is going to be shown. Again, it is called Killbird, and the director is Joe Zanetti. Looking forward to that, and uh, hopefully you are too. I'd like to apologize. I left the window open in the studio, and you heard the neighbor's dog barking. They got a puppy. Why would you get a puppy and let him out when I'm doing a show? Can't figure that one out, but hey, that's what it was all about. That's why you heard it in the background, and I apologize for Joe. It actually threw me off a little bit if you listen closely. Hey, uh, up in the coming weeks, we had quite a few people coming on the program. If you want to find out who's going to be on the show in the next few weeks, all you have to do is go to italknet. Dot com And all you have to do is hit the program calendar and you'll see who will be coming up. On Monday night, we have Robin Quinn Keenan. She is going to be talking about her program about stopping. I don't want to say stopping kids from quitting, but it's actually to get kids to continue and follow through instead of just giving up. And then on 
Tuesday afternoon, the 16th, we have Frankie Ray. She'll be talking about her music career. She's an up-and-coming country singer. And then on Wednesday evening, we have Kristen Marriott, who will be talking about the um, the music scene in Loudoun County, Virginia, which I'm looking forward to that because I go there occasionally. And then um, later this month, we have comedian Chris Georges will be on the phone. And then uh, in August, we have the comedian coach, Neil Lieberman, He was Bob Saget's coach, just to let you know. And we also have um, actress Aver Lim, who will be on the show, too. But, hey, that's enough of me talking about who's going to be on the show. I'm just glad you were able to listen to us tonight here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander, as we broadcast from... The live from the Phil Giannetti Motors Studios high atop High Street in Brownsville, Pennsylvania. If you're looking for a quality pre-owned vehicle, give Chip a call at 724-785-6800. And don't forget, you're listening to us on WMCK.FM, and you're also watching us on Fayette TV Channel 77. And guess what? I hear music. There we go. And that's going to do it for another edition of Online with yours truly, Bill Alexander, here at italknet.com. Hope to talk to you real soon and glad you could join us this evening again for online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. You, everybody, you have a great one. We'll talk to you next time. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.